your Bible, would you find 1 John, the letter of 1 John? You know where Revelation is? Turn backwards a few books. 1 John is there. 1 John chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning. We're going to continue this morning thinking about uh, some of the thoughts that Jonathan introduced to us last week as we tried to uh, apply the work, the redeeming work of Christ in our lives as believers. We have been focusing on the promises of God to send this Savior over the last several weeks leading up to Christmas. We were thinking about Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And now we're thinking about what what effect does this have on God's people. Of course, this was Christ's redeeming work. He's made us right with God, but, but what else is there more to this uh, effect that these truths have on our hearts? And indeed, there is a greater effect. So we're going to look at one more of the ways that we can apply these truths to our hearts this morning from 1 John chapter 2. Last week when we were about to celebrate Christmas, we were able, my family was able to, to drive to see our family in Memphis, and that's a long, a long journey. And when we take trips like that, we plan uh, by gathering some audio books to listen to. If you have kids, you know the wisdom in planning those trips because otherwise it wouldn't be so great. Uh, this year we listened to a Christmas story. You're probably familiar with that story. I mean, I'm sorry, a Christmas carol, uh, a much different story. A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. You're familiar with that famous character, Ebenezer Scrooge, probably. Uh, you know Scrooge. We use that nickname these days, right? When you hear the name Scrooge, what comes to mind? Probably someone who is unfestive, would rather work than celebrate. Someone who doesn't put up lights on their house, doesn't put up a Christmas tree until three days before Christmas, or at all. We have in our minds a certain reputation when we hear this name, Scrooge. Something similar happens when you hear the name Judas, right? You don't name your kids Judas these days, and for good reason. Uh, Because names carry with them a certain reputation. Now, Scrooge is a fictional character. Judas was a real person. Uh, But nonetheless, a reputation is attached to these names. I wonder, what do you think and what do other people think when they hear the name Christian? What comes to mind when you hear the name Christian? In 1 John chapter 2, we'll get at least one description of what should come to mind when the word, the name, the designation Christian is heard. Let's read 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. I'll read through verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Last week, Jonathan pointed out to us some of the character traits of what it means to be a Christian. When, when the work of Christ has borne out in a person's heart, what change does that 
bring. And, and Jonathan really characterized for us this restoration of, of our relationship with, with God. So that's more of a, the vertical plane. We, we saw how, how our relationship with God has been changed because of the work of Christ. And so words like obedience and holiness describe us as God's people. But an often skimmed over portion of gospel change is not the vertical portion of our changed relationship with God, but, but the horizontal view of our changed relationship with other people. And the gospel indeed does affect our relationships. If you remember, this was part of our problem that happened all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. To read Genesis 3, you see that the man and the woman are at odds with one another immediately after the fall. And then one chapter over in Genesis chapter 4, do you remember what Adam and Eve's sons, what one of their sons did? He killed his brother. This animosity, this conflict between people has passed on from one generation to the next and on and on and on even to our day. And so the gospel, even as Paul points out in Ephesians chapter 2, affects not only our relationship with God, it not only restores our relationship to the Lord, but but the gospel affects our relationships with other people. And so in Ephesians 2, verse 14, Paul describes it this way, Christ is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now he was speaking primarily to the Jews and the Gentiles, but in principle, this is true for everyone who is in Christ. We now have this peace between other believers because of what Christ has done. In verse 15, he said, he has created in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So in Ephesians, the term that describes what happens between us and others who are in Christ is peace. Here in 1 John chapter 2, I'm going to give you a different word, one that you're familiar with. The term that John uses is love. Love is a distinguishing mark of Christians. Jesus even said this, right? In John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. Christians don't, first of all, need to have grand ambitions for overtaking the world. We need basic Christian character. Holiness, obedience, love for one another. Today we're going to look at how love is not only the testimony of the early church, but how God has borne out this love in his people even today. Love was indeed the testimony of the early church. Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. He said the same thing to the Colossian church. We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. When Timothy brought a report of the Thessalonian church to Paul, it was good news of their faith and love that he reported. Paul wrote to Philemon, who had a problem with one of his slaves, I hear of your love for all the saints. What Christ has done has worked out love in God's people for one another, not only in the early church, but also in the church today. And anytime we would minimize this character trait of love, then we deny what the Bible says about who we are. What it means to be a follower of Christ is, is to be participating in this act of love for God's people. 
what we find in 1 John chapter 2 is not so much a definition of love. We would have to go to other places in Scripture to get a clear understanding of just what love is. This morning, I don't want to necessarily give you a definition of love. You can go to 1 Corinthians 13 for a good definition there. But what I want you to see is an explanation, a, a motivation to love. Why is it that God's people are people who love? Why is it that we are motivated to love? Why do you and I as Christ followers, why do we love? I want to give you three reasons that we love. First, the command of God. Next, the work of Christ. And third, we love because of the change of the Holy Spirit. So you'll see the whole Trinity is bound up in this work in our hearts to motivate us to love. What God has done in himself is to make it possible and to call us to love one another. So let's start with the first. We love because of the command of God. That's where John starts in verse 7. I'm writing you no new commandment but an old commandment. Now if you're reading 1 John straight through, you'll know verse 7 comes after verse 6, right? This paragraph follows the paragraph before it. I realize you all knew that. Uh, I'm just getting your attention. <clears throat> so this paragraph simply enlarges upon what came before it. And Jonathan pointed out last week that, that the earlier paragraph speaks about Christians obeying God's commandments. Look in verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now here in verse 7, John is, is kind of pinpointing a precise one of those commandments. He's narrowing down this uh, direction and he's speaking about a specific command of God. He's clarifying his point. The command, he says, is not a new commandment, but an old commandment. One that you had from the beginning. It is the word that you have heard. It is none, nothing less than the command to love one another, to love your neighbor. It's the same command that God gave way back in the Old Testament. So if you return to the Old Testament, you'll read the same commandment from God, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, in the world you hear a lot of accusation that the Bible presents a God in the Old Testament who's different than the God in the New Testament. The God in the Old Testament is hateful and vengeful and angry and wrathful. And finally, when we get to the New Testament, you hear about Jesus who's kind and loving and compassionate and gracious. And that dichotomy is completely false. So don't believe it. Because God in the Old Testament is the one who gave us the first command to love your neighbor as yourself. God always has had love in mind when he commanded his people, even as far back as the law. Jesus affirmed the same thing when he told the lawyer in Matthew 22. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Do you remember what those two commandments are? The first one, the first and great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said all of the law can be summed up in those two commands. He was simply quoting what the Old Testament already said. He wasn't coming up with something new. He was repeating what God had already spoken. The command, love your neighbor as yourself, is found in Leviticus 19.18. That book we are slow to read sometimes does indeed have good things for us to read. So the law that God had given was bound up in this idea of love. It is simply an expression of what love might look like. And indeed, as God gave the law, he gave provisions to care for those who were destitute in the land. Such as the farmers would leave food behind in their, far in their fields so that the, the poor could come and glean some food that they could otherwise not attain. 
the law led the people to do things like that. So the law is simply summed up in this short phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says this in Galatians 5, the whole law is fulfilled in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when we read the Old Testament law, we we do read a lot of prohibitions. Do not do this, do not do this, do not do this. But you can sum it all up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. For he who loves would not commit adultery. He who loves would not steal. He would not covet. He indeed would not murder. Love is nothing less than what God had in mind when he gave the commands long ago. John is reminding his readers of this. I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment. It's been around for a long time. It's what God spoke from long ago. And this people who would be reading John's letter, they had had this commandment from the beginning. Not not from the beginning of time, but from the beginning of their hearing of the gospel. This wasn't something new that they were hearing. John's reminding them of what they'd already heard. To hear the gospel is to hear this call. The gospel is a message of how Christ has changed our hearts so that we might love God, but then also love others. The gospel call is a, is a call to change, to, to be restored to God, but then also to be restored to one another of those who are in Christ. This was a truth that they had heard from the beginning. This wasn't new. John wasn't changing something for them to hear. He was reminding them of the old commandment that God had spoken long ago. Because to be a follower of the Lord has always meant not only a change of worshiping the Lord correctly, but also a change in human relationships. Well, there's more that compels us as Christians to love than simply the old commandment. We love also because of the work of Christ. You could say because of the ministry of Christ or because of the life of Christ. But the things that Christ did, the things that Christ has worked out, has brought about this love in our hearts. So he continues in verse 8, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. And you read that and you think, well, which is it? Is it old or is it new? How can that be be the case? Can it really be both old and new? And in a sense, it is both old and new. It's old in the mind of God, but it's new in the work of Christ. There is a sense in which it is new it's not different it's just filled up our understanding of what love is is more full now because Christ has come to the earth and shown us what love is like you know if I told you I got a new car you could think in one of two directions right a brand new car hot off the showroom floor only six miles on it and now it's mine indeed that is not the case or you might think I have a new to me car and a car like that would indeed be old It's simply changed ownership. And so it is true that it would be new for me, and yet the car could be very old. And I I share that with you. Not to say that the love of Christians is like a used car, not at all. But to say that we do have this category of thought that some things can be both old and new at the same time. And this love that Christians are to be demonstrating to one another is both old because God has spoken it and taught it even from from early on in his revelation, but it is also new because Christ has come and demonstrated just exactly what God meant when he said that we are to love your neighbor as yourself, and Christ embodied perfectly what this love was like. When Christ came, there was no longer just the law pointing to what love would look like, but we had the 
very embodiment of love himself, Christ in human flesh, showing us what is love. It is Christ. So here's the new quality, the new aspect of the command that we have. In the words of Christ in John chapter 13, verse 34, he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And here's the new part. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. He said again in John 15, 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's the new part. Love the way that Christ has loved. When Jesus came, he lived out this true love. He gave his people an example of what this love is. And this is why it's true in him. In verse 8, John says, I'm writing to you this old commandment, this new commandment, which is true in him. It was true completely in Christ. You can go back to the Gospels and read over and over again how Christ demonstrates this love of God in himself towards other people. From small things like a compassionate look to someone who is pitiable all the way to the grand expression of love by dying on the cross for sin. One of my favorite portions of scripture is is the gospel of John and especially in chapters 13 through 17. Where it says in chapter 13 verse 1, before the feast of the Passover when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus, just before he goes to the cross and dies for the sin of all the guilty people, though he is the innocent one, he meets with his disciples in that upper room, celebrating with them the last Passover meal together. And he spends his focused time with his disciples. And the Bible says, having loved them, he loved them to the end. We might read that as if he loved them until the end of his life, but this is a much broader expression than that. He loved them to the end as if to love them to completion. He loved them to perfection. He gave them everything that they needed out of his love. Once they experienced the love of Christ, they needed nothing else, spiritually speaking. Here in chapter 13, in verse 2, we read that Judas Iscariot was a part of this group. Christ is loving his disciples all the way to his death. And one of those that he's demonstrating his love towards is Judas, one of his greatest enemies. And in chapter 13, if you've read this before, if you haven't, I would encourage you to read it sometime, maybe even today. In chapter 13, Christ takes off his garments and he puts on the robes of a servant and he washes his disciples' feet. Even the feet of Judas Iscariot who betrays him to be killed. Here's an expression of love at its fullest. Jesus in humility, taking on the role of a servant, doing the thing that no one else wants to do for his people, even his enemy, Judas. These chapters go on and and Jesus continues to demonstrate love for his disciples. He, He encourages them. He shares with them how much he loves them. He teaches them, he, he reveals to them that this time is coming to an end, but, but they should have good hope, they should not be afraid. He promises that the Holy Spirit is coming. And then in chapter 17, we have this grand prayer, the high priestly prayer of Christ for his people. 
By the time we get to chapter 18 in the Gospel of John, that's when he is betrayed and turned over to be hung on the cross and killed for the sins of his people. And that's the greatest act of love that Christ ever showed, sacrificing his perfect life for the sinful lives of people like us. So this, as John says in, the, in his letter, this love is true in him, but it's also true in you, John says. It's true in us because it was true in him. Because Christ demonstrated this true love, now it is also true in his people. We can think back to the things we've thought about, about Christ being prophet and priest and king, and, and apply that to us today. These, these truths of Christ's redeeming work make this love true in us. So we had once been blind to God's truth, and instead we had trusted in lies but Christ, as the prophet, has come and enlightened us to trust the truth. We were once in darkness, but now we've been drawn into light. We were hating God's holiness, and instead we trusted in our own sinful hearts. But Christ, as the priest, has come and, and paid for our sin and cleaned up our sinful hearts. And he's drawn us to love what is right and pure. So we were drawn out of hatred and into love. We had rejected God's authority and rebelled against him and disobeyed God. But God sent Christ as king who has conquered our sinful and rebellious hearts. And he's conquered sin and death. And Christ died and rose again. And just as Christ died to sin and rose overcoming death, we also have died to sin and, and risen to new life in Christ. We've been drawn out of death and drawn into life. And for John, these three things go together, light and life and love. We have all three of them as God's people or, or we have none of them. But Christ has already worked these things out in the life of Christians. If you today call yourself a Christian, if you are trusting in Christ for your salvation from sin, then you have the light of Christ in you. And you have the life of Christ in you. And you also have the love of Christ in you. And in Christ's redeeming work, he has set in motion this final and full victory that one day in the future will, will be completed. And we are assured of this final victory. John is, is hinting at this. He says it's true in him and it's true in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Where is it shining? It's shining in the hearts of God's people now. We can be assured of the final victory to come because Christ has already overcome and won the victory in our hearts. The darkness has faded, is, is passing away from our hearts because the true light is shining there, the light who is Christ. We look out in the world and we still see darkness. But brothers and sisters, we can trust the darkness is fading there and it will one day be finally gone from the world because it's already shining. The light is already shining in our hearts. We are sure of what has not yet come because of the things that have already come. Christ has shown the light in our hearts. The darkness is defeated. It's just not yet fully gone, but it will be. Well, the question is, how does this certainty, how does, how does this absolute certainty of Christ's work, how does that make us love? How does that motivate us to love? Well, it's because, because of what Christ has done, we now have a completely new principle of life. We have a brand new outlook on reality. 
Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We are no longer fleshly, natural people. We are spiritual people. So we look at life, we look at people with spiritual eyes. With the eyes of faith. We look on others according to the light and the life and the love of Christ. And God has worked this new principle of life in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I show you the third reason that we love. We love because of the Holy Spirit's change. We love because of the change that the Holy Spirit brings about in our life. The Holy Spirit works out in God's people a complete restoration, a complete renovation. We call it regeneration. It is this new birth. Not a physical new birth, but a spiritual new birth. Because we are not who we once were. At one time, darkness and hatred and death described us. But now, light and life and love describe God's people. And that's the contrast in the rest of the verses here. Look in verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there's no cause for stumbling. These three things go together. Love, abiding in the light, no cause for stumbling. And he's as if John is implying that there is a cause for stumbling for those who, who actually hate. That's what he says in verse 11. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. That's the cause for stumbling. It's this blindness of his eyes. See, not only... Does the person without Christ, not only is he in the darkness, but the darkness is in him. This is why the one who tries to love without Christ cannot fully love the way that God has commanded or the way that God has intended. Everyone who is without Christ cannot love fully because what is in him is darkness. People must have the Holy Spirit change their hearts in order to accomplish this commandment. You remember blind Bartimaeus? It wasn't enough to put Bartimaeus simply in the presence of the light who was Jesus. When he came around Jesus, he asked him a question. His problem wasn't over, so he asked him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus, you know, the loving, compassionate Savior that he is, he restored Bartimaeus' sight. But it wasn't enough for Bartimaeus just to be in the presence of Christ. He had to have Christ do this new work in him. He had to have him heal his eyes and remove the blindness from his eyes so that he could see. This is precisely the condition of unsaved man. He's not only walking around in the darkness, which is this world, but he is even blind to know that the darkness exists. But once the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to the heart of a sinner, and that blindness is removed then everything is different about that person. He is regenerated. He is born again. He is completely changed. So he's no longer described the way that verse 11 speaks, hating his brother, in the darkness, walking in the darkness, not knowing where he's going, having blind eyes. He's now described, as verse 10 says, loving his brother, abiding in the light, having no cause for stumbling, the fellowship of God's people is made up of those who are described as abiding in the light, loving his brother. 
The fellowship of God's people does not contain those who would live a lifestyle of hatred towards a brother. Because God's people are described by love. Now some of us would be very sensitive to these verses and would read this and it maybe worry. Am I living a lifestyle of hatred towards another? Have I acted in hatred towards a brother or sister? And if so, does that mean I'm not in the light? Does that make me someone who's in the darkness? And you, you may come to doubt your faith because of these words. But let me clarify what, what John is saying here. If you look in verse 9, he says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. That word hates is a, is a present, continual action. He's, he's speaking of a lifestyle He's speaking about a mindset of hatred. John is saying, whoever says he is in the light and is hating his brother is actually still in the darkness. This kind of hatred would be a personal kind of hatred. But in no way does hatred describe the relationships of believers. Because that's not what the Holy Spirit has made God's people to be. You know what the fruit of the Spirit is, right? Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love and a whole bunch of other things. But it starts with love. I think that's purposeful. We might ask, what indeed does this hatred look like? What does John have in mind when he speaks of someone hating his brother? He doesn't really describe it in these verses, but... But John is, is a different kind of a writer. He, he revisits his topics over and over again. And so in the letter of 1 John, he, he speaks about love, loving one another, and even hating the, 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 the contrast between love and hatred again in, in chapter 3. So if you're looking in your Bibles, turn over to chapter 3 and verse 11. This is the message that you've heard from the beginning. Sounds very familiar. That we should love one another. And then he describes what... This doesn't look like. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Now that's reassuring to us, mostly, hopefully. We, we can all probably check that box. We've never done that, hopefully. Never murdered anyone. But the question is, why did Cain murder his brother? And he actually asks and answers that question. Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So there's a, if you know the story... Uh, Cain killed his brother because God received Abel's sacrifice but rejected Cain's sacrifice. So maybe this is the harder part of the message. Um, what resulted in murder might have been a little bit of resentment or bitterness or jealousy. So John says we shouldn't be like Cain, but we should be careful that the attitude of Cain doesn't well up in us because it might result in the same things that resulted in Cain. And that was murder. So murder is opposed to love. Look in verse 15. He uses the word hate again. Hatred is opposed to love. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So hatred would be just the inner attitude, the inner feelings that result in the outward expression of murder. That's why hatred in your heart is equal to murder with your hands. If I could try to put it in a bit clearer terms, murder is just the way to work out a desire for no relationship with another person. It's this desiring to no longer be connected with another 
person for whatever reason is preferring to not have any kind of engagement with another. And so you take matters into your own hands and you remove the other person from your situation. Hatred is just the feeling inside that works itself out into that action outside. It may start with thoughts of, I don't want to reconcile with another person. I'm tired of dealing with him or her. I don't want to face the consequences of interacting with that person anymore, so I'll just avoid them. I would rather them not be in my sphere of life at all. But that is hatred, and it's just a few steps away from the act of murder. John says that is opposed to loving one another. But there's more. Look in verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. That's Christ. Christ showed his love by giving up his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If we are to imitate our Lord Jesus Christ, then we too will be ready and willing to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. But he puts it in a bit more manageable terms in verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, but closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? One who would not even give up his goods for a brother in need, how would he be certain that he would give up his life for a brother in need? So this is just the idea of being reluctant to help a brother. You have what it takes to, to help a brother in need, but you would rather hold on to it yourself, not give what a brother or a sister would need. But there's one more. Look in verse 18. Hypocrisy would also be opposed to loving one another. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Love is not bound up in words only, but love is action. It is deeds. It is, it is truth. It is saying one thing and doing that thing. It is not saying one thing and doing something different. What the Holy Spirit does in God's people is to change our whole perspective on life. The Holy Spirit changes our perspective on, on God, who is God. He changes our perspective about ourselves. <laughs> we see ourselves as much smaller than we used to. The Holy Spirit changes our perspective about other people. We see them now as part of our family, part of our body. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are a priority to us. He changes our perspective on our stuff. Our stuff is even for the glory of God and for the service of other people. And so when the Holy Spirit changes our perspective about all those different things, this change results in our loving one another. So in this fellowship of God's people, love is the guiding principle of our relationships. Now I don't know if Charles Dickens had in mind the Holy Spirit changing Ebenezer Scrooge's heart. He didn't mention it, so I'd say he probably didn't. Scrooge is a good example of the kind of change that John is describing for us. And it's actually rather disappointing that Scrooge gets a bad rap because if you've read the whole story, if you get to the very end, what happens? Scrooge is actually a, a model of celebrating Christmas. He's very generous. It, his, his view of other people and his life changes. We really should be praising others by the name Scrooge. I'll encourage you to do that. See how that works out. Don't do that. The Christmas Carol says that Scrooge was better than his word. He did all and infinitely more. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the city 
ever knew. He knew how to keep Christmas as well as any man alive possessed the knowledge. Again, I don't know if Dickens had the Holy Spirit in mind, but would that it would be true that the name Christian would bear a reputation as high as a changed name like Ebenezer Scrooge. That we are not who we once were, that we are much better than we once were, that we are those who love one another. Titus chapter 3 says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That renewal includes our love to one another. Because of the command of God, Christians should love. Because of the work of Christ, Christians can love. And because of the change that the Holy Spirit brings, brothers and sisters, we will love. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of how and when. But let me leave you with this to be very careful. What John gives us in 1 John 2 is not a diatribe of do better, you should love better. Please don't hear that kind of a message. In fact, 1 John chapter 2 is not essentially about love. Now, as I say that, you're thinking, what have I been talking about the last 35 minutes? 1 John 2 is about life in Christ. And your love for one another is a part of that life in Christ. So if you find your place, if you find yourself in a place of, I'm short on love these days, I don't want to encourage you to go back to some law to say, you're a bad lover, you need to grow and be like this kind of a lover. What you need to do is, Turn back to Christ, who is the ultimate and complete expression of love. Think on Christ, who, who showed true humility and loved his disciples, who, who served his disciples and loved them, who sacrificed himself for his people and loved them. And let the love of Christ then inflame you, your heart, to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Harvest Point, let's be a church that loves one another. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so encouraged by the, the ministry of Christ who did these great things on our behalf who served us and encouraged us who prays for us who loves us and we are very challenged by this call to love because we recognize our own sin and our own tendencies but Lord we trust in you we trust that you have done a work in our hearts to make it so that we can and that we will love. So Father, would you bear this out in our hearts? Remind us that because of what Christ has done, we can love. Because of how you've worked in us, we can love our brothers and sisters. 
Lord, help us not to see the reasons that we would not love, but help us to focus on the things uh, that would cause us to love. Lord, we want to follow your example that you have shown us in Christ. Would you make that true of us?